Good morning. For those of you not familiar with me, my name is Daryl Fletcher. Let's turn to Psalm 73. Let's read verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let's pray. Lord God, as Samuel said to you so long ago, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And we are here today to hear your voice and ask that you will speak to us as you spoke to him, that you will make yourself and your will known to us for your name's sake. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, the psalmist here in Psalm 73 begins this psalm with an emphatic statement. He declares with absolute confidence that God acts beneficially and favorably toward his people. To all those who pursue him and love him with their whole heart. And I'm quite certain also that you would expect little else to come from the pen of the man that King David appointed as chief of the men who were to lead worship before the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Chronicles 16 and 25, we find that it was also his responsibility to make petitions, to give thanks and sing praise to the Lord. He was a significant and prominent Levite and very, very few walked in the circles that he walked in. And though this verse is at the beginning of this psalm, it actually serves as as a summation of it. Verses 2 through 28 serve as the backstory as to how he came to embrace this truth. And interestingly enough, the backstory that we look into isn't a pretty one. And as we're going to see, there was a time not that long before this statement is made that he wasn't so sure about what he just said. He begins bearing his soul by telling us that he nearly suffered catastrophic spiritual loss. Look at verse 2. Though he says, surely God is good to Israel, he says, but as for me, My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Well, what in the world could cause cause this to come about in such a prominent spiritual leader? Well, he tells us in verse 3, I almost lost my foothold because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
His inner spiritual turmoil began when he looked around and saw wicked men who hate God prospering in their wickedness. And it led him to doubt the rightness of God's dealings toward them. But it didn't stop there. It also led him to doubt the rightness of God's dealings with him. He saw the wicked man's circumstance and assumed from that 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 they were all happy and that they possessed something of lasting value. It rocked his theological world to the extent that he questioned the very character and the heart of God himself. It looked to him like God was condoning what these wicked people were doing. Now, how would you like to have your innermost thoughts broadcast for, for the entire world to see and to be let in on? I, I think this clearly speaks to the honesty and the truthfulness of, of the psalmist here. Not many of us want all our sins paraded before the church community, right? And yet, here we have one man honestly confessing the depth of the struggle of his heart for all to read. And as embarrassing and shameful as it is, I have a feeling this is what James had in mind when he says in James 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. He says that he envied the wicked. Now, we need to remember that envy and jealousy are not synonymous, though they do share the same root. The base idea of both of those words is the idea of zeal. And zeal for one's own property is jealousy. And jealousy says, I have something and I don't want you to have it. That's jealousy. Now, on the other hand, zeal for another's property, that's envy. Envy says, you have something that I want. I don't have it, but I want it. That's envy. And that is what is now coursing through his veins. The challenge of the prosperity of the wicked is nothing new. This fact has brought spiritual heartburn to many through the centuries. Jeremiah got a case of this heartburn, and he questioned God. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You've planted them. They've taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Job got a burr under his saddle about this as well in Job chapter 12 and chapter 21. Habakkuk did as well, and so have others through the centuries. 
this envy is more than just a desire to have the stuff some wicked guy has. This in and of itself would not shake a man of this caliber's faith to the core and bring him to the precipice of throwing his faith in God overboard. This envy is based in the belief that God is not just in his dealings with men and that he treats the wicked better than he treats his own devotees. Asaph is questioning God's providential goodness and he believes that God is somehow wrong in acting as he has. And this has become a brick wall in his spirit and he cannot get past it. He isn't able to square what he's heard of God with what he sees everywhere around him. I want to ask a question. Who injected this envy into his veins and sent it coursing through his spirit? Who administered this almost lethal dose of envy? He did. Envy is always a self-inflicted wound. Always. Just like no one can make you angry. Anger is an inside job. Envy is an inside job as well. So what does he see that moves him to believe this way? Well, again, the answer to that question is very simple. He saw the same things you and I see every day. Look at verse 4. As he describes what he sees, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. They scoff, they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how can God know? Does the Almighty have knowledge? He sees wicked people who are healthy, wealthy, and live on easy street. They're so wicked, they wear pride for jewelry. They bully people. They get their way. And if someone gets in their way, they not only threaten to harm them, they do harm them. They say God is on their side. And they give as evidence all their beautiful clothes, their new boat, their beautiful home. They lay claim to heaven They say, I've got heaven in one hand, and I've got everything the earth has to offer in the other. I got it made. And the difficulty is that Asaph finds it hard to argue with them. And I think the hardest part for him, and for most of us, 
is that these godless people are not receiving justice. They even claim that God doesn't know. They say God is arrogant. Or, I'm sorry, God is ignorant in their arrogance, that's what they say. They say God is incompetent. They say he's incapable of doing anything about their actions. And he sums up how he feels and his worldview in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, and they increase in wealth. That may be how you see the world too. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves here is, is his perception right or is it wrong? And the answer is, it's both. It is right. He is right in that we all know people who are like this to one degree or another. Most of us know people who spew out filth all day long. They live like the devil and they prosper in it. But it is wrong. It's not the entire picture. He's painting with way too broad a brush. And how do we know this is the case? We know this because there are criminals in prison, and many of them are on death row, right? There are drug dealers who kill and maim others who are on their turf. So criminals do get what's coming to them at times. There are many promiscuous people who suffer severe consequences for their actions. And there are arrogant athletes that come in second. Right? We all know this. One writer said it this way. It's easy to speak in generalities about others and how good they have it especially when we see the specifics of our own painful experience. And isn't that how it works? Yeah. Here in verse 12, he tells us that he only saw part of this picture. He sees them as carefree and money pouring in. So what is his conclusion as to how this all relates to him? Look at verse 13 and 14. Surely, no doubt about it, in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. His response, his conclusion to this is bitterness of soul. I'm getting a raw deal here. I keep my heart pure. I seek to keep a clear conscience. And for what? I get nothing but misery. I can never reach the standard that has been set for me. I, I keep trying to get that, and I never make it. Why do you think the sacrifices are there every day and every week, right? 
And yet I see evil men enjoying the pleasures of life. I think you need to hear or realize that envy is now talking out loud. This is envy talking. Matthew Henry says, he felt himself under the continual frowns of providence while the wicked were sunning themselves in its smiles. See, the Jewish exiles that had returned from Babylon felt the exact same way. The prophet Malachi declares to them in Malachi 3, 14 and 15, he says, you have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Asaph sees himself and feels himself being hammered by a standard of behavior that is not the least bit flexible or relenting in its demands. When was the last time God said, I'll cut you some slack on that. You can just go ahead and do whatever you want. His demands are, are they are unrelenting because he is absolute perfection. Those demands are set before the psalmist here daily, and he's constantly confronted by his inability to measure up to God's righteous demands. Add to this the sight before his eyes of the wicked thumbing their nose at God, all the while they're laughing, having fun, not at all hindered by the standards of God. They ignore him and they find great freedom in it. And he looks at the wicked and thought that the wicked were getting a better deal. How do we know that? How do we know he thought like this? Because he tells us that he contemplated joining them. Verse 15. If I had said, you know what? I'm going to be like that. I'm going to speak like they do. He says, I would have betrayed your children. He was on the verge of throwing away his confidence in God. He's drawn up short of declaring his conclusion to the congregation. He says that if he had gone to the point of actually saying out loud what he was thinking of doing, his words would have been a deep betrayal to the entire assembly. As long as he keeps his mouth shut, he's the only one that's injured in this struggle. And so the tug of war in his soul rages on. Now, we don't normally attribute this kind of struggle to someone of this spiritual caliber, do we? Someone actually chosen by King David as the chief musician in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And he is a mess inside. This only shows us that no one is immune from the effects of sin. We are all susceptible to the influence and power of sin. J just ask the man after God's own heart, right? 
or, or his son maybe, the wisest man in all the world, they both fell prey to the entanglements of sin. And here's the, what's interesting to me is I'll guarantee you that if you could look into my heart unfiltered, and if I could look into your heart unfiltered, we would both be shocked and stunned as to what was actually going on in there. And we would wonder if either of us were rightly related to God. Right? Jeremiah was right when he said in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. Who can know it? This man is struggling desperately, and we find this clearly in verse 16 when he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. He is a boiling cauldron inside, and he doesn't dare lift the lid and let anybody see inside. Yet the more he tries to reconcile these two positions, the more deeply he struggles. So on the one hand, he believes that God is good, that he is righteous, and that he is just. And yet, on the other hand, God appears to be blessing the wicked also. So what benefit is there for being righteous? So for him, this has become an unsolvable riddle. Well, maybe it has been for you too. We have to keep in mind that, that Asaph is, is a Levite in service to God at the highest level. He's been handpicked by the king to serve God in front of the ark. In 1 Chronicles 25, verse 2, we're told that he also prophesied under the king's supervision. You don't rise to this level of service by being a below-average student in theology class, right? Here's something else that we tend to forget. You have to remember that King Saul and all his evil actions and the price that he paid for those actions, they are a living memory to Asaph. He was alive when all that went down. He's only one generation removed from Eli's wicked sons being killed for their over-the-top wickedness that they participated in. So how does Asaph fall into this heart-wrenching dilemma in the first place? Well, I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with the fact that the envy he has embraced encourages and feeds a tunnel vision in the heart. You can't see anything else. You slowly become consumed by it as you feast on nothing else hour after hour, day after day. 
And before long, the creature that you've been feeding becomes a monster that consumes you. So is he now relegated to the ash heap of hopelessness? Or is there a remedy for this pitiful soul? We read again in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. And then he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He says that the oppression was heavy until he entered the sanctuary of God. The riddle that was unsolvable a few moments before unravels and becomes clear in the light of God's presence and his word. Now, why do I say in the light of his word? Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 26 say, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and there it will remain as a witness against you. Moses commanded that the book of the law be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. So as the Levite in charge of the worship of God before the ark, Asaph has the unique ability of accessing the sanctuary of God and the word of God. And it's because of these that light dawns over his soul. It's here that he, be, he comes to realize clearly the final destiny of those who reject God. Now, I want you to notice he doesn't speak of their immediate destiny. Meaning, what's going to happen to them in the next six days? Maybe the next six weeks, or even the next six years. That's not what he's talking about. He sees their final destiny. What ultimately happens to people who maintain a posture of antagonism toward God. The tunnel that was restricting his vision so that he could only see the benefits of being wicked has been smashed by the word and the truth of God. And God's true character now breaks out over his soul and in his heart and mind. So what's the antidote to the poisonous envy that's running through his veins? Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He realizes, and I'm going to use this word in each statement, he realizes that God is not being negligent in relation to evil men. He realizes that God's delayed dealings with them is not injustice toward either him or them. 
Just because he's delaying it doesn't mean that's injustice. He realizes that God is actively working against them, but on his own timetable. He realizes that the wicked are oblivious to the danger that is before them. They have no idea that there is a jealous God actively planning their demise. And their situation is just like it was in the days of Noah. Remember when Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The wicked are oblivious to the danger that is right in front of them. And he realizes that God is against them and that death and eternal destruction are only a heartbeat away. The veil is very thin between being alive and meeting God. And as these truths settle in, he focuses the eyes of his heart on the sovereignty, righteousness, and power of Almighty God, and he sees these arrogant boasters in comparison to God as pitiful little men grasping their paltry, shiny trinkets. And God's truth has put his feet back on solid ground. He has been sustained and saved by the power and presence of God. Spurgeon said, Asaph saw with his mind's enlightened eye the future of the wicked, and his soul was in debate no longer as to the happiness of their condition. No envy gnaws now at his heart, but rather a holy horror, both for their impending doom and of their present guilt. He recoils from being dealt with in the same manner as the proud sinners whom just a moment before he regarded with admiration. And interestingly enough, the condition of the wicked didn't change, did it? That hasn't changed. They still have the same amount of health and wealth and arrogance and disdain for God. So what changed? Did God change? Not in, the, not in the least. So what changed? There's only one thing that changed. He did. He changed because he saw an unadulterated picture of God in his word, and he believed him. That's, that's it. That's the only thing that's changed. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. How many of us want to go around sharing that to the rest of the people in church, right? <laughs> he confesses the sad condition of his heart when he allowed envy to course unchecked through his system. 
he confesses in the presence of God that his heart was grieved. Another way to say it is, is his heart was soured like milk gone bad. He had poisoned his own life and his spirit was swimming in a pool of bitterness. He admits to thinking like a godless man, like, like one who knows nothing of God at all. He saw himself as nothing more than a creature living by instinct rather than a man made in the image of God. He is now no longer grieved over wicked men. He is now grieved over his own sinfulness before a holy God. That's what has taken over his heart now. What's happened to his vision? The eyes of his heart are no longer constricted by deception. He sees the wicked do not have the final word. He believes that they will be dealt with in due course, and that by a jealous God. What else does he realize? He, realize, he sees again or he realizes as if for the first time how God is related to him. Look at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He sees as a, as a blessing the constant nearness and companionship of God as it washes over him. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. All his doubts are silenced and answered in the confidence and divine guidance is, 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 is available to him. He is secure. His future is secure in God's presence where he says, afterward you will take me into glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He embraces God as all he could ever need or want. He values God and his blessings anew over the temporal things that men fight over and kill for. And a few minutes ago, he was belly aching that all his efforts in relation to God resulted in a big zero for himself. Now he sees that God is actively benefiting him by not only protecting him and guiding him each day, but also promising him entrance into his eternally glorious presence. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He owns the wickedness, and I'm sorry, he owns the weakness of his physical frame, the shortcomings of his own heart, but he also embraces God's unlimited strength that is freely extended to him forever. God is on his side and there is never a time that God's power is not available to him or you. It's available to us as well. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It's available to us as well. In, in my hopefully sanctified imagination, I, I doubt that sometimes, I wonder how many boxes of Kleenex he went through as he sat writing these verses to keep his tears from staining the pages as he wrote. Verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. He speaks directly to his God, and he states emphatically his rekindled conviction that no evil man will survive his encounter with the living God. God will be the active agent in the destruction of those who are unfaithful to him. He will destroy them. And he believes it. And he does not want to be a part of that group any longer. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. Isn't it interesting that just a few minutes ago, he says, I don't dare let out what's in my mouth and what I'm thinking about. He says that back in verse 15. I, I can't tell anybody what's going on inside me. And what's he doing now? You can't shut him up. He turns from God, and he now speaks to the congregation. And he says publicly to them, it is good to be near God, and I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. It's as though he emerges from traveling through a very deep valley in his soul, and it now overflows with the blessings and joy of restored fellowship with God. And then turning back to God, he says, I will tell of all your deeds. He states that he will tell of all his deeds, and that's going to include how he spared this wayward man from becoming a spiritual statistic. Is there any wonder why he started the psalm with, surely God is good to Israel, <laughs> to those who are pure in heart? How did he get there? He went through some very dark days to come to the place where he realized that God is good and he is good to all of us. Though what I see around me doesn't look that way. Uh, I know because I went to his word and that's what he says. Now, there are, there are many things we could say in closing. I just want to focus on two things. First, the wicked are not to be envied. The psalmist found this out the hard way, and he makes clear that they are to be pitied. They are blind to their own condition. They're oblivious to the anger of the righteous God that is soon going to be unleashed against them. They have no clue that they are literally one heartbeat away 
from being introduced to the God that they've rejected all their lives. Don't envy them. You need to pray for them and ask God to be merciful to them just like he's been to you and me. And I don't know where you stand with God today. If you're here and you know that you are on God's enemies list and you're not rightly related to him through his son, you can be. I hope you feel free to come talk with myself, the other elders here, to understand what it means to believe in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Well, second, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, you need to remember that only God and his truth can revive your fainting soul. Dr. Phil is not going to help you. Oprah is not going to do you any good. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? <laughs> Reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And this is where help for your troubled soul will come from. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will take this word and encourage the weak and faint of heart with the realization that you are always near and ready to aid them in their hardships. I also ask that you will convict those who may be living a life of envy, restore them to the sure footing found in your name alone. Cause the eyes of our hearts to focus on the glory of who you are rather than on the trinkets of this world. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.